Had my Charlie at the front. Char oh, Troy put his hand up. It's awkward. I don't know what to do now. Welcome. Welcome and good morning, everybody. I am going to speak about the Book of Esther. Who loves the Book of Esther? It's fantastic. Esther is amazing. It is a lively story. It has got an arrogant baddie, a dim-witted ruler, a wise old sage and a young woman who goes from zero to hero and changes the world from the very spot she finds herself. It's full of tropes. It's full of like reversals and uh, plot lines and twists and turns. Uh, and it's found in the Old Testament, the first book, uh, the first part of the Bible. So just so that you know the context that we are speaking in today, this is your 22nd wrap-up of the story so far. You ready? So there was this guy. And his name was Abraham, and God made a promise to him and said, you are going to be a great nation, and that nation is going to bless loads and loads of people. And that man's grandson had 12 children, 12 sons, and through him they grew into a great nation, and through an elaborate set of events, those 12 sons and all of their people and all of their children and all of their flocks and everybody that was connected to them ended up in slavery in Egypt. And another guy called Moses went to the leader of Egypt and said, let my people go. Sound familiar? You with me so far? So the, the people got let go and they headed north to the promised land and they settled down. But after some time of being settled down in the promised land, some baddies came and took over and sent them into exile. You guys come and live in this foreign land far away where you don't know anyone or anything and it's all really different. And then after a while, there was kind of like a change and it all got a bit like, oh, you can go home if you want to, that's okay. And some of the people went home and some of the people stayed. And this is a story about some of the people that stayed. Are we good? We're oriented, radio. So here's the people of Israel. They were in exile and they were under the Babylonian people and they were super bad guys. But then the Babylonians got crushed by another mob called the Persians and they were super bad guys and they found themselves under the leadership of this guy called Xerxes. Two X's, no Z's. You with me? Okay. Now, he was a really silly man as a king. During uh, this time of his reign, he decided to have a massive party. He had like a really big party. It wasn't like a two-day party. It wasn't a seven-day party. It was a 180-day party. That is the entirety of the school holidays all added together plus the long weekends. That is a massive party. And he was a silly man, and at that party there was a lot of drinking. And during that party, he had a really silly idea. He said, I know, I'm going to call in my wife, Queen... I've just forgotten her name, Queen Vashti, and I'm going to parade her around for all the fellas to see. But Vashti said no. And this upset King Xerxes and all of his looker-afterers, all of his minders, and they were cross. She said no. I don't blame her. Three cheers for Vashti. Anyway, let's move on. So... He said, that's it, she's not the queen anymore. In fact, I don't ever want to see her again. She's banished and he said, I'm going to find a new queen. So they set up a fashion parade. No, it wasn't a fashion parade. He called in all of the most beautiful young women from the whole land 
in order to choose a queen. He's like, I don't like the old one because she said no to me and I want a new one. And so he pervaded all the most beautiful women from the land in front of him in order to choose. And he chose someone called Esther. So this is our main character today. He chose her because she had actually really impressed all the people in his court. They, they thought she was fantastic. She could do no wrong. And the king looked at her and said, she is my new queen. That was Esther. Now, Esther... Oh, no, wait, go back. Now, Esther was a young girl and she had been orphaned. Sorry, you've got to watch it again because I went back. She had been orphaned and uh, she had been raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and she found herself in the presence of the king. Now, enter the baddie. This is the super baddie. This is Haman. So Haman was a baddie and he wanted everybody to like bow down and worship him and let him know how that he was just like number one and super great, okay? But there was one guy who didn't want to bow down to him. It was Esther's cousin, Mordecai. He's like, I'm not bowing down to you. And if you want to hear more of that story, come next week. That's the other half of the story. I'm telling this side of the story, there's that side of the story. So come next week, find out the story of Mordecai. But Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him and this made Haman super cross. There was probably lots of things that made Haman super cross, but that was one of them. And so he organised for there to be a decree that would kill all the Jewish people. Not just Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. He actually set a decree that said anybody in the whole land... If your neighbour's Jewish, you can take them out and steal all their stuff. It was really bad. It was a really, really bad situation. So Mordecai heard about this situation and the plight of his Jewish people and he went to Esther and he begged her to approach the king and plead for her people. But this was a really big ask because they both knew that you do not just approach the king if, if you try and approach Xerxes uninvited, he can have you put to death. This was a really big ask. Go to the king and plead for our people. That's a really big ask for Esther. This is what Mordecai said to her. This is the key verse. He said to Esther, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And that was Mordecai's plead to Esther. And it was a really big one. And Esther actually had courage and said, okay, yep. She said, yes, let's do this. So Esther called for a banquet. She didn't just like march in straight away to Xerxes with two X's and say, let my people go. That was another guy's line. She walked in and she said, well, seeing you're not going to kill me, I'd like to invite you to a banquet. 
Oh, and Heyman, the super baddie guy, I want you both at a banquet. And you would think that this is the moment she's going to say, you need to let my people go and don't have them killed. But she doesn't. She says, so, my request is let's have another banquet. But at the second banquet, she says to the king, my people are set to die. And the king says, who did it? And she says, Haman. Oh, <laughs> whoops. Doesn't go well for Haman. And in the end, the Jewish people celebrated because they were rescued. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai agree. Woo! That was a great story. Was that not a good story? But I have told you the tinsiest, winciest little slither of that story. There are so many things that happen in the story. I'm begging you, go home and read it today. Find a spot in the sun, flip open to the spot. You can probably knock it off in 45 minutes. It's a great read. Kids, if you want to go home, find it in your kids' Bibles and say, Mum, Dad, Brother, whoever's going to read it to you, read this to me because apparently it's a cracker story because it really is. There's heaps of twists and turns, plot, different things that are going on and it's fantastic. And I want us to have a quick look at that story, at this corner of that story this morning because I think it's got a few great pieces of advice for us here today in our world, in our setting that might help us to think about how we can be quietly loud. How can we posture ourselves in the world around us so that we can be the people that God wants us to be? So I want to think about three things. The first thing is that this book has something really different about it. God's not in it. Did you know that? Out of all of the books of the Bible, this is the one where God appears to be completely absent. He's not there. He's not mentioned. He's not, you know, noted. His name is not in it. It's the only the book of the Bible. It's a bit of an anomaly. Even when there are moments when the writer seems to be setting up for a classic moment where he's going to give the credit to God or they're going to note a particular worship practice towards God, it is absent. It is missing. It is not there. God is not talked about. So why? And this is, ready? I think that it's a literary device. Big words. I think that it's a tool that the writer is using to make us look for something more. I think it's a technique that the writer is using. I don't think it means God wasn't there. I don't think it means the writer forgot. I think the writer is saying... Come and look for God. Search for God. Look harder for God. I think it's an invitation. Because in the story, what you do see is some really ludicrous happenstances, some, some ludicrous moments where that could not possibly have been the logical case the world would have worked. And yet, by some twist of fate, there it is. That's the outcome that happens. So as you go home this afternoon in the sunshine and read the story, look for those moments. There's even a moment where they roll the dice to get an outcome. And the point is, we're supposed to go, that could never happen. I wonder how that happened. 
and look for God. So the story has no booming voice of God. It has no great God moment of breakthrough. It has no pillar of fire, no flaming angels, no dreams, no visions. And I really love that because sometimes that is what life is like. Sometimes there is not a booming pillar of fire or some great voice that's spoken from on high that solves the situation. Sometimes it's really quiet and we have to search and look and seek out where God is at work. And I think that for this group of people who were in exile in a faraway land, in a land where they were a minority, where the the way they wanted to live their life wasn't the way everybody else was living, I think that this group of people probably needed to be reminded how to look for God in the nuances, how to look deeper for God's activity. I think they weren't quite as privileged as their ancestors were when their ancestors saw God separate a whole sea so they could walk through it or whack a rock and water would flow. This group of people needed to look a little bit more closely for where God was at work. Years ago, when I was a little girl, probably on school holidays, um, something happened in my life where I actually found myself in a situation where I felt quite alone and afraid. And um, over the years, I've remembered that particular event and that thing that happened that day, sort of like a bit of a, a, almost a bullying situation where I felt really unsafe. And over the years, I spent a lot of time kind of quizzing God. Where were you in that thing? Where were you? Why weren't you there? Why weren't you present? Why didn't you intervene? Where were you? And I said it year after year after year after year. God, where were you? If you are this great, big, amazing God, why, did the, why didn't you intervene in that situation? And it wasn't until recently that I stopped talking long enough to give God the benefit of the doubt and listen to see if he had a reply. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, God, 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 God. And then eventually I got to the point where I'm like, maybe you do have an answer to the question and maybe it is worthy of me listening. So I stopped and I listened and I was surprised at God's answer. I feel like in my head, imagining God's voice or something, because it's not God speaking loud. It's something a bit more complex that was happening in me. And I feel like I heard God say, oh, my dear, you've no idea how I fought for you. I was so there. I was whispering in people's ear, trying to convict them of their behaviour. I was... And then it got weird. Ready? He said, I was... I was in Hamilton growing a girl called Julia because I knew that she would introduce you to me. I was in some, I don't know, place over in Britain growing Ali Box because I knew that one day you would need somebody to speak wisdom into your thinking. Oh, by the way, I was somewhere far away back in time writing Narnia because I knew that you would need that to help you to form something in you about identity. Oh, and by the way, I was here and I was there and I was... And he kind of really just laid out this 
outside of time, massive chessboard of activity that he was doing that was actually him genuinely intervening in that situation in my life. And I thought he was absent. I thought he wasn't there. He was just hidden. He was just veiled. He was just harder to see. You know, like, like when Mordecai in our story tells Esther that if she doesn't act, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. He's pointing at God. He's saying, trust me, girl, God is at work. Make no doubt. Or, or when Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, that is, a, that is a Jewish thing to do when you are crying out and lamenting to God. He, this author is telling us, trust us, God was there. Or when Esther decides that she will actually go in and do the thing she knows she needs to do. She says, go together, all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. Fasting. What are they fasting for if it's not to plead to God? God is there, and they know it, and the author knows it. He's utterly present. So I think the story of Esther is calling us to look a little deeper for God and where he's at work. The underlying worldview of this story is that God is actively present in the world. You just have to look a little closer to see it. The second thing is that I wonder, it doesn't say so in the story, but I wonder if Esther ever wondered if she was enough. Am I enough? Like, to actually be somebody who could actually do something in the world? Am I enough? She was an orphan girl. She was absolutely helpless to say no when they rounded them up like cattle to parade them before the king. She was helpless. She was an orphan. She was helpless. She had no voice. She was paraded for his pleasure. And she carried with her all that shame and pain that probably came with all those things that she had to do. And even more than that, she actually denied her Jewishness. I feel like I've got... Um, Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background. She kept that secret. And I wonder, as I read that, I went like, ooh, don't, don't tell Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that you did that. Because like we parade them around to go, they were so brave. They stood out and stood on their faith in the book of uh, Daniel in another story that's set in the same time. They said, no, we're not going to behave badly. We're not going to follow your ways. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to. But Esther kind of did. Ah. And I wonder if she ever says, well, who am I? What would I know? Who am I? What would I know? And when I thought that, I realised that I actually say that a lot. I find myself in situations when, you know, perhaps someone's coming to me for some advice or for some insight about something or to talk about something and the first thought that goes through my head is, well, who am I? What would I know? Like, if you knew, if you knew my backstory, you wouldn't want my advice. You wouldn't be interested in hearing what I've got to say. Thank you. Sean Wood. 
I love you, Sean. You're great. And I, do, I wonder whether any of us ever get to the point where we say, well, it's great that those guys all do those great things and that's making a difference in the world. Or Tony, who was here the week before. Or Matt, who's the scientist who's doing all this. Like, it's great that all those people are doing, but oh, you don't know who I am. Like, who am I? And I wonder whether we need to take a leaf out of Esther's book and go, it doesn't matter who I am. I'm here for this moment. The third thing is I wonder if we might ask, well, what do I have? What do I even have? And you might say, well, look, I'm very little here. I don't know all those clever Bible things that that grown-up lady knows. And you might go, Who, what, what do I even have to offer? If God is at work in this world and he's inviting people to participate in him, what have I got? Like, I want to pull my pockets inside out. What have I got to offer? What could I possibly offer? And Esther didn't have much to offer either. Even though you might go, yeah, but she was the queen. Honestly, she had so little rights, it wasn't funny. In fact, even any rights that she might have had as a woman out in the real, like, the real world around her, she probably had less rights than that. And she was like on, a, on the knife's edge of life that if the king decided he's not going to call her anymore, she's going to spend her whole, like the rest of her days just sitting around in his harem pining for a different life, not pursuing anything of her own. Honest to goodness, she had nothing to offer. Years ago, I remember um, uh, in uh, Burma at the time, but in Myanmar, on the Thai-Burma border, it was a refugee camp, and I was visiting in there, doing some teaching in the Bible school there, and I met three young girls, Anna, Tamlapo, and Pokawa, and... Um, Tamlapol was going to take me on a bit of a tour around and show me a few things around the camp. And she said, meet me after the lunch bell goes and, you know, I'll, I'll give you the tour around. And so I sort of went to the designated spot and I waited and I waited and I waited. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'm in the wrong spot or something. And eventually she sort of, like, rushed along and she said, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I just needed to take some food to somebody because I knew that there was a young person and they were new to the camp and they were, weren't well and they needed some food. And I just kind of went, oh, you know, this, these people wait every Friday for the UNHCR vans to turn up and give them enough food for their camp. And she had enough to take some of her lunch over to, to that guy. Like, and I, she, she doesn't know, I don't know, who knows what that young guy was going to grow up to do in God's kingdom or what that act of generosity did in his life and in his heart for the kid. We don't know, but she just did what she needed to do because she just felt, I don't know, I'm assuming she just felt prompted to go and do it. It was in her. You don't know the thing that you're going to do and the difference that it might make. Um, even if it's making a toasty for your brother. Because the other day, one of my kids came home from being away and I was, I was lamenting because I couldn't be there to do the whole, oh, mother, 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 love, 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 look after, whatever. And he's probably like, thank goodness. Um, but I wasn't there and I was sad that I couldn't be there to do that because I had some work commitments that I was at. But by the time I did get home, I found him happily on the couch with a mug of hot chocolate, a lovely cheese toasty playing video games with his brother. And I went, ah, oh, you know, for such a time as this. And 
And you might go, well, how's that got anything to do with God's great work in the kingdom? I have no idea, but I do know that it's the kind of thing that Jesus asks us to do. And when, when someone turns and Jesus says, love your neighbour, and someone says, who's my neighbour? It's your brother. And just do it and get on with it. Because what if in the whole great grand scheme of things, it's one of those things that God is busy at work doing in order to solve something really important in his kingdom world? But be careful because it might cost you. It might cost you the palace. Because actually for Esther to, to decide to do that, that, there was like this whole life of being the queen on the line. Actually, even more than that, her life was on the line. It might actually cost you. And Esther had to consider the cost, as we do whenever it is that we're called to do something. So it might well be in a work situation, you actually recognise that you need to call something out because it's not right. And it might cost you a rung on the ladder. Or there might be a moment where you go, actually, I think I need to generously do this thing over here and it might cost you some of your finances. Or it might well be that you say, I just want to sit and do my own thing because it's a Tuesday afternoon, but making toasties for your brother might cost you a bit of your time. But it's worth it. It might cost you. And sometimes the really big things are really costly. But I wonder if we need to be ready to bear the cost. So, how is it that we can have such assurance that God will invite us to participate with him? Because that's what he's doing. God does not need human participation. He can do it all by himself, but he chooses. He chooses to invite our participation with him in his great kingdom work. And I guess it's because I can see the way... I I don't know... There's a little parallel for me. I wonder if you're making the little parallel of somebody who said, sure, I'll I'll risk the riches and risk my life in order to save the people. Because that's what Esther did. She said, sure, I'll I'll give up the the possibility of of being the queen. Because look what happened to Vashti. She was like, out. You know, so she said, I'll risk that. In fact, I'll risk my life to save my people. And the answer is Jesus did that too, so that we might all get to participate with God. God is doing a great work of bringing this world back to himself. As the band comes up, I just want to leave you with these few thoughts. I wonder if you've ever considered that God is not active and present. I wonder if you've gone, yeah, but where even is God? I haven't seen him show up. I wonder if maybe like me, you have to look a little closer. Seek and ye will find. Look a little closer. Look into the gaps and ask, what's going on here? God, is this you at work? I wonder if perhaps you don't feel like you are enough. You're sitting there going, you've got no idea. I've gotten so many things wrong. Trust me, God uses those people the most sometimes in the Bible stories. Or maybe you might say, look, I'm just so, I'm pretty broken. Who am I? 
because Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, but you have come to your position for such a time as this. You might be saying, I'm, I'm small, I'm too small. I don't have anything big to offer. That's okay. You're of infinite worth. He will use you. I don't think there's any doubt in God's mind that he will use you. And don't for one minute think that you don't have anything to bring to the great work that God is doing. And who knows, but that you have come to your position that you are in for such a time as this.